I've just dived out from me on the piano because I want to introduce a friend of mine who's coming to speak to us this morning. Some of you will know him. He's been to the church many times. In fact, he used to, him and his wife used to be a part of this church a long, long time ago. Duncan and myself uh, first met uh, in um, Salt Mine many years ago. And if you're in Resound, you need to head out. Guys, bye. And uh, we, we met when we were working together in Salt Mine in Dudley many, many years ago, just after the Boer War, I think it was, somewhere around that kind of era. And uh, we became friends then, and we've stayed friends ever since, and of um, married, not each other, because that would be weird, uh, and had kids and all of that. And, and also now, Duncan is a leader at a church out in Suffolk called the Forge Church, and we're very closely uh, related to that church. We um, speak at each other's churches, and we've also done mission trips together to Zambia, and it's great to see Phil with us as well as being on some of those trips. So Duncan's a good friend of mine, and uh, this will give something away, but he's one of my monkeys, all right? So you, that won't mean anything to you, but it will mean something to you later on. So why don't you welcome him to the stage? Thank you. Cheeky little monkey. This is great, this, isn't it? It's huge. Oh, wow, there's a door back here. There's another church meeting in here. Pardon? Does the bloke on the piano know what? How to play the black ones? I don't think so, no. Wow, that's incredible. You you guys go to town on this stuff, don't you? I'm going to try something that I'm not very good at. Leon's the, the man with the voice. I can't sing. But I'm going to try and sing. But I need you to help me. I need you to finish the song, okay? I'll start, you finish. Here's the little song I wrote. You might want to sing it note for note. Don't worry. Oh, awesome. Tremendous. Do you know, if you Google happy songs, there are shed loads of them. Loads and loads and loads. Thousands of responses. Why? Because this pursuit of happiness, this desire for us as human beings to, to, to be content in our lives, is universal. It, you know, it's not um, confined to age groups or people groups or countries. Lots of us spend great deals of our time chasing this thing called happiness and contentment. And it's understandable, really, because psychologists tell us that becoming happy has its benefits. They say that happy people live longer lives. They say that contented people have healthier lives. They say happy people have more success. Happy people have stronger relationships. Happy people say yes more frequently because being happy changes the way they see the world. So let me ask you a question this morning, and I want you to be honest by raising your hand. Hands up if you would say this morning, right now, you are happy. I reckon that's about 40% of us. Thank you. Put your hands down. Hard one to answer, isn't it? Do I put my hand up or not? Am I happy or not? I know I want contentment. I know I want to be happy, but is that how I feel right now? What does happiness look like in a human being? We all want this elusive thing called happiness and contentment, We all know it's got a price tag of zero. It's what money can't buy. But how do I get it? Paul wrote to a church in uh, Philippi a couple of thousand years ago. And he writes this letter to this this church and he tells them about his own personal happiness levels. So Philippians chapter 4 in the message, Paul says this. I'm glad in God. You want to know my happiness level right now? Gladness. I'm glad in God. Far happier than you would ever guess. Actually... I don't have a sense of needing anything personally. I've learnt, he says, how to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. 
pause there for a moment. Paul says, I've learned to be quite content whatever my circumstances. So happiness is something we can achieve, we can get as human beings, but it doesn't come in tablet form. You don't stumble over it by accident. You have to learn how to be happy. There are certain life practices that take us to the contented life we're all after. And Paul goes on, he says this, I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. Then he says this, I found the recipe for being happy. You have, Paul. Yeah, I found the recipe, he says, for being happy, whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, he says, here's the recipe, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything. In the one talking about Jesus. I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. So in those verses, Paul is saying, look, you want the contented life? You want the happy life? You can get that life, but you're going to have to learn it. You're going to have to orient your life around some practices that will bring you to the place you want to be. It won't happen by accident. You've got to push the right buttons. A couple of years ago, my dad, bless his cotton socks, he said, Duncan, you and the family look tired. You need to go on a bit of a holiday. And I said, Dad, that would be amazing, but I can't afford to go on a holiday. He said, no, it's all right. I've got it covered. I'll pay for you and the family, my three boys, me and my wife. <clears throat> I'll pay for you to go on holiday. You just need to pay for the car hire. So we booked some flights to Spain. We booked a place to stay in Spain. Uh, Dad paid for that very kindly. And we had to stump up the money for a car, for a car to hire a car at the airport because the accommodation was about an hour away. Uh, so... Um, We did that, and being that I work for a church, I couldn't afford a lavish car. In fact, I could afford the smallest and the cheapest. Whenever you rent a car, I guess you do the same. You do the tiniest car you can find. So the five of us were due to be crammed with all our bags into this Vauxhall Corsa, or car, or something. I don't know what it was, but it was cheap. And so we get to the airport, we queue up. Eventually, I get to the desk, beautiful little senorita in front of me. And I say to her, my name's Duncan Banks, I've come for my car, and... uh, uh, she started to answer me. I, I, I was going to do the accent, but it would come out Welsh, so I better not. <clears throat> but she said, I'm really sorry, Mr. Banks, but we've run out of cars. And she saw me go into panic mode. I mean, I was pulling my hair out. We're about an hour away from here. I've got the family. I can't sleep in the airport for two weeks. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? She said, no, calm down. She said, don't worry. We've run out of cars in your bracket. We're going to have to give you a different car. We're going to have to upgrade you. So I kind of take a step back. That's lovely. And she gives me a uh, registration number on a, on a little ticket, and she says, you'll find the car in the car park. Go out into the car park, um, looking around at all the cars in the car park, and eventually I find the registration number and match it up to the plate on the back of this black BMW. <laughs> I'd got upgraded to a BMW. Wow. Thank you, Avis. So we, we, packed, we packed all the you know the cases into the boot the kids all got in and dad this is so cool this is so exciting we sat there for 20 minutes I could not figure out how to get this car started (laughs) it's a keyless car I mean you're as poor as a church mouse you never drive keyless cars you just put the key in and turn it on there was a button that said push to start I pushed it nothing happened 20 minutes, I pushed every button I could find. So eventually I got out of the car and I took, with my towel between my legs, went back to find the lovely senorita and said, can you help me? I'm stuck, I can't get the car started. So she rolled her eyes in Spanish and she... <laughs> I picked them up and rolled them back. <laughs> so hey, <g-dum-tsh>. So uh, <laughs> it gets better. So, um, we, uh, so we, we come back out to the car, she gets in and of course she starts it immediately and I'm really embarrassed. I mean, who knew that you had to have it in first gear with your foot on the clutch and the handbrake on and your right trouser leg rolled up? I didn't, you know, this, I didn't, they don't tell you that kind of stuff. 
But the car fired up, the kids cheered, and we, we drove away on the rest of the holiday. And as we kind of, as I got in the car and wound the window down and said goodbye to her, I said, I'm really sorry, it's a bit embarrassing. She said, it's okay, sir, you're just pushing the wrong buttons. And that phrase stuck with me. You see, there are certain buttons, it's a scientific fact, there are certain buttons that human beings can press in life, and a chemical reaction happens in their brain, psychologists will tell you this, and it will lead you to the happy life. It will lead you to the content, feeling of contentment that all of us want. But you have to push the right buttons. Unfortunately, for most of us, like me and my BMW story, we spend our lives pushing the wrong buttons. We push those buttons time and time again, thinking it's going to get us to the happy life, and nothing happens. We stay in the car park. Nothing moves. So we think things like, I know, I'll push the button of a new diet. If I lose a few pounds, that'll take me to my happy place. That'll give me the contentment I want. So we push that button of a diet. We lose a few pounds, and still we don't feel happy. If only I could get more money, if I could make more cash, that would make me happy, surely. So we push that button, still we don't find happiness. You know, I'd I'd be happy if I found that someone special. And we find that someone special, and we settle down, and it doesn't give us the happiness we desire. And so in life, we think there is these kind of buttons we can push. We can maybe buy a new house, that'll make me happy. Move to a brand new postcode that's a bit more upmarket, that'll make me happy. Get promotion and a new job, so I have a better job title, that's bound to make me happy. And it kind of doesn't. We spend our lives pushing the wrong buttons. We think, if only I could look in the mirror in, at the, in, in the morning and see a supermodel looking back, that would make me happy. If I could just be famous for five minutes, that would make me happy. And we push all these buttons, thinking it's going to bring us to the happy life. And it doesn't. We stay still. You know, research shows that none of these kind of things brings us the sustainable happy, happiness and contentment that we're all seeking for in life. The research has shown that. Most of us already have what we need to be happy inside of us. We just need to push the right buttons to access it. So come on, preacher. Tell me what the right buttons are. If there are buttons you can push to make you happy and contented, what are those buttons? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what those buttons are. As we go through, there are two big buttons, and I've got two huge theological questions to ask you, self-diagnostic questions that will help you uh, on your way. But there's been so much research on this recently. It's a fellow called Dr. Ed Diener. Here he is. He's called Mr. Happy. He's the head of the International Psychology Society. And uh, they were gathered together, I think it was in Switzerland, and they were chatting together as a bunch of psychologists from around the world. And they were talking about uh, what the Psychology Society had been doing for the past hundred years. And they'd done some amazing stuff. I mean, they'd they'd done incredible research into depression and anxiety and what makes human beings sad and what makes human beings anxious. They'd done some incredible research which had really helped get people out of depression. It's really helped change addictive behavioural patterns in human beings. It's really helped people who have anxiety be less anxious in life. But as they gathered together about 10 years ago, Dr. Ed Dina said, guys, do you know what? We've spent decades looking at what makes people sad. We've never really looked into what makes people happy. Why don't we try and figure out what makes human beings happy? What are the keys to happiness? Because it's the thing that everyone's chasing. And so they've done over the past 10 years huge amounts of research into this area. And as part of that research, Ed Dina said this, it's interesting to me that the majority of people spend the majority of their time, listen, majority of people, not just a few of us, most of us, spend most of our time 
Pursuing happiness along a path that yields the least amount of increase in their happiness factor. We spend all our time chasing this happiness dream, but we're pushing all the wrong buttons all the time. And we keep thinking it's going to make us happy, and it doesn't. So we keep pushing the buttons and nothing changes. Are we mad? Ed Dina says we walk along that path time and time again. You know, the research says that um, these things, these buttons that we push, they might give us an initial kick of happiness, but very quickly we move back to where we were. In other words, he says, that new car smell wears off quicker than you think. It does, doesn't it? You buy that new car, you feel great for 10 minutes, and, and all of a sudden that feeling of euphoria, it dies, it dies down. If I was just to now, right now, give you £1,000, there would be that initial kick of happiness and joy. But very soon you'd go back to where you were before because these aren't the things that bring us sustainable happiness. The science says that sustained happiness but it can be found in certain life practices. We have to orient our life around certain life practices. And it's interesting to me that the Bible that was written a couple of thousand years ago says the same thing as the research you've discovered in the past 100 years about the human condition and what makes us happy. And we're going to look at that together. So I want to talk to you about these, these two life practices. The research says there are 10, 11, 12 life practices. I want to talk to you about the top two. The top two buttons you and I need to press to get to this contented, happy life that we all choose. And the interesting thing, the price tag for this happy life is zero. We don't have to spend bucks, dollars, pounds. We don't have to spend time and energy and effort in those things that don't make us happy. Here are the two things. First button to push is this. The research says that happy people have friends. Happy people have friends. And so they did some research. They took a monkey and they, put, uh, they, they wired the monkey up so they could test his brain patterns. And they put the monkey in a cage shut the door, and then they started to shake, rattle the cage really quite powerfully. And then they put some powerful lights in and out, flashing colours into the cage. Then they played some loud noises into the cage. And as they monitored the monkey, they realised that his stress levels went up massively. Of course they did, because someone rattled his cage. And, you know, human beings, we're the same. When our cage gets rattled, our stress levels go up. And sometimes that's a good thing. So if you're standing on a train track and there's a train coming towards you, it's kind of a good thing that your stress level goes up because it makes you focus on the train that's coming. You're not thinking to yourself, train's coming, what am I having for tea? Have I put the right socks on today? You, know, you can focus just on the train coming and how you can get away from it. So sometimes stress levels are good. But for most of us as human beings, stress isn't like a train that comes immediately in our face. It creeps up on us in a whole bunch of other areas. Our cage gets rattled day after day after day. The noises of the world in which we live get louder and louder and louder day after day, and our stress levels go up. And so what these researchers did is they, they didn't give the monkey any drugs to help him cope with his stress. They didn't uh, stop the rattling. They didn't stop the, the lights. They didn't stop the noise. All they did was they opened the door of the cage, and they put in another monkey. They put his monkey mate in with him. And his monkey buddy sat next to him. And they kept monitoring the monkey. And you know what happened? Very, very quickly, his stress levels dropped by 50%. His stress level went down. His happiness level went up hugely. Nothing changed except for the fact that he had a monkey in the cage with him. So I want to ask you my first deep theological question. Who's your monkey? Seriously, who's your monkey? Turn to the person next to you right now and say, will you be my monkey? <laughs> Ask them that question. 
You need a monkey in life. When your cage gets rattled, you need a monkey in life. You need someone who's going to stand next to you when your cage gets rattled. Because life's tough. Life's difficult. Life's full of stress. In the Old Testament, there's this character, character called Job. And if you ever read about this character called Job, boy, did he know a stressful life. He knew trouble after trouble after trouble. Really difficult circumstances. And Job writes this in Job chapter 5. People are born for trouble as readily as sparks fly up from a fire. If you're going to get born, you'll know trouble. Just as much as if you light a fire, the sparks will go upwards. It's inevitable. Jesus commented on this. So Jesus says in John chapter 16, in this godless world, you will continue to experience difficulties. Jesus is saying, in this world, there will be trouble. He goes on in the verse to say, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. But he says, look, life is full of trouble. You get born, there'll be difficulties. There'll be stress. Someone will rattle your cage on a pretty consistent basis in life. Life is full of trouble. Life is stressful. So don't do it alone. Again, it fascinates me that the ancient words of Scripture match up with these modern philosophical ideals. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the writer says this, you are better off to have a friend than to be all alone. Why? Why are you better off having a friend than being all alone? It's so obvious, because then you'll get more enjoyment out of what you earn. You've got to share your earnings, share your experiences with people who call themselves friends. Because that, doing that with a friend, that is what raises your happiness levels. That's what brings you the contentment that you're desperately seeking. I'm telling your church, you've got to get a monkey. You've got to find yourself a monkey. Who is that person? You know, seriously, who is that person that you would knock on their door at three o'clock in the morning because you needed some help and they wouldn't turn you away? I'm not talking about an acquaintance because many of us, we work in places where we have acquaintances. We've seen that same face of that guy in the office for 20 years. Still don't know the name of his wife or his kids. They're not friends, they're acquaintances. A friend is someone who you can knock on their door at three in the morning and say, I, I just need some help. And they'll say, I'll drop everything and I'll come your way. Who knows you intimately? There's a great story about three fellows in church. And they decided that they just knew each other on a surface level. Because blokes, we're good at that. We know each other on a pretty surface level. I think the women are better than us. They get deep real quickly. They get boxes of tissues and start crying with each other within five minutes of meeting each other. That's incredibly sexist. I've got to be careful. I need to stop them. But us blokes, we talk about, we talk about football and the, you know, the weather now and again. And that's about it, really. You know, Leon, I understand his pain. He's a Villa fan. <laughs> and le- yesterday we had the conversation, you know. He's a Villa fan. His team shipped five goals. I come from Suffolk. Our local team is Ipswich Town. We shipped six goals yesterday. So I know his pain. I know his pain. Us blokes, we don't go beyond that. So these fellas in church decided, no, we want to get deeper. We want some real deep friendships. So after church, beautiful summer's day, they go out to the lake and decide to do some fishing together and do a bit of male bonding. And towards the end of the day, they had a great day laughing and joking together. And one of them said, come on, boys, now we know each other so much more. Let's get deep. Let's be honest. Let's be intimate. Here's my question. What's your biggest, deepest, darkest sin? What's your secret? What's your temptation? I'll start. He says, for me, for me, it's money. I can't wait for payday. 
I can't wait to get my pay packet. I can't wait to get the cash in my hand and then to rush out and spend it. I can't wait to get to the shops and hand the cash over and get some goods. I can't wait to go online and click on a few places and then put my credit card details out and wait for it to arrive. I can't wait to get money and I can't wait to spend it. And the bloke next to him says, oh, thank you, that's great, thanks for being honest. Well, mine, for me, for me, it's lust. I can't wait for the summer because girls wear less clothes in the summer. I can't wait to see them in their lovely little bikinis and tight shorts. I can't wait to see them walking past me as I get to the office in the morning. I can't wait to see that beautiful receptionist in our office block. I can't wait to see girls. I can't wait to look at girls. I can't wait to get my hands on girls. For me, it's lust, and I can't wait for a woman in my life. And so they both turned around and looked at the third bloke and said, well, what is it for you? And he said, for me? I'm not going to tell you. And they said, no, that's not fair. You know, we've been honest. We've bared our soul to you. Come on, what is it for you? What's your temptation? What's your biggest, deepest, darkest sin? And he said, well, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. I can't. And they said, no, you have to tell us. It's not fair. We can't leave the afternoon like this falling out. We've got to be friends. Come on, we've been honest. You be honest. What's your deepest, darkest sin? He said, all right, all right. For me, it's gossip. And I can't wait to get back to church next Sunday and tell everybody what I've heard in this boat this afternoon. No, really, who knows you enough to know those kind of sins in your life? Who do you walk with through life that doesn't just know what you're good at, but knows where you're weak and will have your back and will hold you to account? That's proper friendship. That's deep friendship. You know, Jesus' brother, James, spent enough time with Jesus to know that friendship can never stay surface, and a deep friendship will give you happiness and contentment. So he says in James chapter 5, this is how friendship should run, he says, confess your sins to one another. We should do that now. We should go around. Hi, my name's Phil, and I'm an adulterer. Hi, my name's Bob, and I'm a money launderer. Hi, which is fantastic. In fact, let's do it. Let's start. No, no, no. But who knows you enough so that you can confess your sins and hear their confession and keep it between the two of you but hold each other to account? What kind of friendships are we developing? My worry is that we know this is true and yet our friendship life stays at a Facebook level where we have hundreds of friends but we don't really know anyone or a Twitter level where we have hundreds of followers but we don't know their name. And we think we're well connected. We think we're held to account. And it's just surface. But my worry is that we live that kind of a pseudo-relationship life. And there's nothing wrong with Facebook. And there's nothing wrong with Twitter. I love it. It's great. But it can't replace the intimacy of good friendships. So my first question, my first deep theological question, who's your monkey? You need to have one. Because you'll never get to those contentment levels that your heart desires. And you know what? Good friendship doesn't cost a bean. There's no price tag on it. Real friendship is the kind of friendship that scrapes the car for you at half past five in the morning and picks you up and brings you to speak at a church in Hales Owen. Thank you, Philip. I appreciate it. That's genuine friendship. Second thing, the second button you need to press to find sustained friendship is this. The research found that happy people are givers. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Happy people surely are the ones that get. You get more money. You get a bigger house. You, 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 
you know, you get stuff and that makes you feel better. You get a better postcode. You get promotion. You get famous. You get some recognition. That surely is what makes you happy. No, no, no. Not according to the extensive research. The research says, and interestingly enough, it matches up with what the Bible's been saying for years. Happiness, contentment comes when we give and when we give generously. Lots of my thinking on this has been stimulated by a a man called Dr. Henry Cloud. Henry Cloud is a world-renowned psychologist. And he wrote a book called The Law of Happiness. And in the book, he tells a brilliant story about him and his daughter Livy. And he's taking Livy to school one morning. And they're walking along the, uh, walking along the path towards school. And he notices Livy's got her lunchbox, little Tupperware lunchbox. And he looks in the lunchbox and he sees she's got an apple and a drink and a sandwich, a packet of crisps. And he also notices she's got a Kit Kat. And he says, Livy, are you up for a bit of a challenge? And she says, yeah, Dad, whatever, whatever. He says, I'll tell you what, what you need to do is this. When you get into school and it comes to lunchtime, eat your lunch. And when it gets to your Kit Kat, open the Kit Kat, eat two bars for yourself. And then when you've got two remaining bars, look around and give the two remaining bars to someone else. It could be to your teacher. It could be to your best friend. It could be to somebody you've never met before. It could be to somebody who you want to become a friend with. But just give the two bars away. And then we'll talk about it when I pick you up this afternoon. Fair deal? And she said, yeah, Dad, fair deal. And she hops off into school. He returns in the afternoon. She comes running through the playground. He describes it beautifully in the book. She comes running through the playground. She runs up to him. She said, Dad, 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 what was that? She says, Livy, I don't know what you're talking about. What went on, she said. What went on when I gave that half of my Kit Kat away? What went on here? And she points to a little chest. He says, darling, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, Dad, when I gave my Kit Kat away, something warm and lovely happened in here. It made me feel so good. And then he went on to try and give her some deep psychological research answer, which she couldn't understand. So she said, forget about that, Dad. All I know is that it made me feel so good. Every lunchtime from now on, I'm going to insist Mum puts a Kit Kat in my lunchbox, and I'm going to give half of it away because it makes me feel great. She'd got it. She'd got that happiness, contentment comes when we... Give. You know, know, interesting that this to me, research found, I I never said this in the first service, um, because I don't think they were mature enough to cope with it. (laughs) But I think you are. Research found that when people have the life practice of giving, okay, so whether it's money or whether it's your time or your service, whether it's making a uh, some, some food for the old man over the road because he hasn't had a visitor for a week or you babysit the kids for the single mum because she just needs a break. Whatever it might be, when, you, when our lives involve sharing and serving, something happens chemically inside of us. A chemical change goes on in our brain. And so the researchers hooked people up to measure this chemical reaction. And when people gave, what they discovered was astounding. They measured the chemical changes, and they discovered that when human beings give, the same pleasure centers are stimulated in the brain that get stimulated when you eat fine food or when you have good sex. Maybe you're not mature enough. (laughs) But there's something about giving that's really good. There's something about when we're generous that gives us the same sense of happiness and contentment that a great meal or a fantastic night with whoever, (laughs) be careful, Duncan, will give you as well. Isn't God amazing that he wires us up that way? He wires us up to say, whoa, giving a Kit Kat away is fun. And then a bit older, whoa, getting together with someone I love in a married relationship is wonderful as well. 
What an amazing thing. There's great reward in giving generously. And so there's a church in Corinth thousands of years ago that was getting really screwy on this whole giving and getting thing. So Paul writes to them, the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, remember this, he says. You might forget a lot of stuff from my letters. You might forget a lot of stuff that happens in church. Remember this one thing. Don't forget it. Underline it in red. Cut it out. Stick it on your fridge door. You know, that kind of thing. Stick this in your brain. Remember this, he says. Whoever sows sparingly, in other words, whoever's a loose change giver, and I'm not just talking about, you know, offering baskets in church, whether it's your time or your money or your energy or whatever. You know, when you give the butt end of your day, when you give just the little bit that you've got left, when you're not an extravagant best of giver, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. But, he says, look at the promise. Remember this as well. Whoever sows generously, whoever gives above and beyond twice as much as they thought plus doubling it, whoever sows generously will reap generously. Something from heaven will come back to you that's going to give you the contentment that you long for. So let me ask you. I've asked you one deep theological question. Who's your monkey? Here's my second one, and it's even more profound. What's your Kit Kat? Really, what's your Kit Kat? I want to be generous to you. The uh, um, hosting team are going to just move amongst us right now, and they're going to pass the offering baskets back around. And I want you to give twice as much as you gave no, I'm only joking. Look at the panic on your face. Shocking, except for Leon, whose eyes were lighting up all over the place. We want to give you something. Hosting team are going to pass these things around. I'm going to give you the same thing that Dr. Henry Cloud gave Livy, his daughter. I'm going to give you a Kit Kat bar. And I want you to do the same thing. Not right now. Maybe later on today over tea time. Not before you've eaten your dinner, boys and girls. Maybe later on. Maybe tomorrow. Stick it in your lunchbox. Take it to work or take it to school or take it to college. But when you come to open this, eat two bars yourself, enjoy it. But then look around and give two bars away. And when you give two bars away, do two things. First off, think about what's going on in there when you give generously and someone says, oh, thank you. And when you give the bar away, second thing, when you give the bar away, ask yourself, what's really my Kit Kat? What does God want me to be more generous with? What does God want me to give? Because it's not just a bar of chocolate. Where do I need to be more generous? Because in being generous, my happiness levels will go through the roof. So what is your Kit Kat? Maybe God is asking you to be more generous with your stuff, your money. Maybe that's the finger he's got on you right now to do with your checkbook and your cash. You know, there's a great story that's told... Uh, at the end of the Second World War, London was destroyed and there were lots of orphan kids, little street urchins that were living rough and they had nothing. And there's a brilliant story, it's repeated in quite a few books, about a little lad who every morning would go to the baker's um, in the old Kent Road and he would stick his nose against the window of the baker's and he would watch as the baker would come and take donuts out of the oven and put them onto a tray and he would lick his lips as he saw those hot donuts and he knew he had no money to buy them but he would look anyway and then this one particular morning this American serviceman pulled up in his jeep outside the baker's screeched his brakes jumped out of the car and ran into the baker's to make a few purchases and he bought six hot Juicy, sweet donuts. Had them in a paper bag. And he walked out of the shop and he noticed the little street urchin standing there. He looked down at the donuts, looked at the street urchin. He went across, tousled his hair, dropped the donuts in his hand and said, there you go, son, enjoy yourself. He turns around and walks back to his jeep. 
And as he's walking back to his Jeep, he gets right near the Jeep and he hears a little voice say, excuse me. And he turns around and it's the little lad. He's come running up behind him. And the serviceman says, what do you want? He says, excuse me, sir, but are you God? Why would he say that? Do you know why? Because you and I never look more like God than when we give. Seriously, we never look more like God than we give. We come to church every Sunday, don't we? And we say, God, I want to look like you. I've become a Christian. I want the characteristics of my life to look and sound and feel like Jesus. That's what I want. That's why I come and listen to people teach the Bible and sing worship songs. Because I want to be like Jesus. God says, you want to be like me? You are never, ever more like me than when you give. For God so loved the world that he gave. And he didn't give loose change. Gave his son. God so loved the world that he gave. He says, you want to look like me? Then give. And you'll find something chemically going on in your brain that will make you feel the business. It will raise your contentment levels and your happiness levels. It won't cost you a bean. You can't put a price tag on that. Maybe it's not money. Maybe for you, this Kit Kat is more about your time and your talents and your gifts and your abilities. You know, again, Paul writes to this church in Corinth and he says this, Now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you has a part to play. So what part are you playing? In this particular body, if you would call this church your home, what part are you playing? Or are you just a spectator? I do love football and I do feel Leon's pain. I watch football. I watch it on TV. I go watch Ipswich Town play every week. I deserve a medal for that. Um, I love watching it, but there's nothing like playing it. You know, it's only recently I've had to hang up my boots because of injuries, but I used to play for my village team. And it was great watching Cristiano Ronaldo control the ball on his chest and dribble it down the line and meg somebody and run around shouting megs and then dinking the ball in the, cross, in the box. He could watch that on TV, but to get out onto a pitch and to try and do it yourself and to feel the thrill of the game. You know, you could say to me, Duncan, do you want to go watch a game and do you want to play a game? I don't want to be a spectator. I want to be a participator. My 14-year-old, Nathan, he, he watches football with me. He's obsessed with football. But he can only manage about half a game on TV. He gets to about 30, 35 minutes, and I can see him itching. And he runs out, gets his boots on, gets, his, gets the football, and goes out in the garden and kicks the ball. He can't bear to watch. He has to play. And for some of us, we stay in the seats. We stay as spectators. And we daren't come down on the pitch. And yet the pitch is where the adventure is. When you give of your time and your energy and your, your talents, your abilities... Your gifts, when you figure out how you're wired up, what your passions are, and you start putting them into play, that's where your happiness levels go up. So were you a spectator here at Zion, or were you a participator? I want you to fill Leon's inbox this week. Leon at zionnetwork.co.uk.org.whatever it is, net something. Fill it up and say, these are my gifts, or can you help me find out what my passions are? I have half an afternoon a week, I have a day a week, I have one day every three months, I've got some time, I've got some talents, how could you use me in the mission of this place? I just want to serve, and I'm doing it for two reasons, one, because it's what God calls me to do, secondly, because I know it's going to bring me happiness, I know it's going to bring the contentment I want, so come on church, let's get out of the stands and get onto the pitch, let's start playing. So research says the life practice of orienting our lives around friendship will bring us the happiness we want. The life practice of orienting our lives around generous giving of our time and our talents will bring us the happiness 
we won't. So let me bring this whole thing into land. Let me conclude. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah thousands of years ago. And he said this in Isaiah 55. Is anyone thirsty? I mean, you've, you've tried to get happy. You've done all the world tells you you should do. You've bought the shiny stuff. You've tried the happiness thing that the world says you should do. You've bought the products. You've tried to get more money. You've tried to get a better postcode. You've tried all that stuff. And you're still thirsty. It hasn't satisfied you. Is any of you thirsty because you've pushed all the wrong buttons and it's not delivering? Is anyone thirsty? Well, look what God says. Come and drink. Even if you've got no money because the price tag says zero, you don't have to pay a bean for this. Come and drink from me. Come take your choice. Wine, milk, it's all free. And then he says this. Look, he says, why spend money on food that doesn't give you strength? What's the point in buying stuff that does you no good? Why keep pushing that button thinking it's going to help you? Why do it over and over again for five years, ten years, twenty years? Why keep doing it? What's the point? He says this, why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me, God says. Listen to what the psychological research says that's matched up with the word of God. Listen to me. And when you eat, it will do you good. You will enjoy the finest food. Maybe you've chased happiness in all the wrong places you pushed all the wrong buttons and now you find yourself in a place you never intended to be debt is here up to your eyes and beyond and it's killing you you can't see a way out it feels like a box with a huge price tag on it maybe for you you've chased happiness in toxic relationships and it's damaged you and it's scarred you it's hurt you maybe it's addictive behavior that you're embarrassed about that's ruining your relationship with others Certainly ruining your relationship with God. Maybe you've been chasing happiness there and it hasn't delivered and you're thirsty. God says if you're thirsty, if you're wanting, come to me and I'll give you something that money can't buy. Because it's not about the money. Jesse J was a prophet. It's not about the money. This is where you're going to find contentment. God says, the God I know says, give me the dust of your life. You know, give me the ruins of your life. Give me the wrecks. Give me the sin, give me the embarrassment, and I'll make something beautiful out of it. 